This week, was Tyrannosaurus rex really the fearsome beast of legend? It makes the distinct possibility that Tyrannosaurus rex also had some kind of fluffy, fuzzy protofuzz. It could have been actually a very cute killer. And brain decoding can reveal what you're seeing, remembering, or even dreaming. Current uh, brain reading technology is actually good enough to be able to make a picture of the brain, actually to make a movie of what, uh, what you saw. Plus, in the news, the drugs used in lethal injections and the companies that make them. This is The Nature Podcast for the 24th of October 2013. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Its name means the Tyrant Lizard King, and its portrayal in textbooks, museums and films like Jurassic Park is certainly in line with that. But Tyrannosaurus rex might be a rather misunderstood little dinosaur. Well, okay, big. It was definitely big. But there are plenty of other question marks over its appearance, its habits, and its relationship to other tyrannosaurs, because it's part of this larger family. Dino expert Brian Sweetek has tried to answer a few of them in a feature. He and Noah Baker chatted them over. Here's Brian. It's sort of the uh, irony of Tyrannosaurus rex is that, you know, it's fairly well sampled. There are about at least 50 uh, partial skeletons, you know, enough completeness that people usually give them names like Sue or Stan or Jane or things like that. But in terms of knowing the animal's biology, getting beyond the bones, how it actually lived, what it looked like, what you know, physiology was like, there's actually quite a bit of biological questions that are still up in the air about how the animal actually lived. Question number one for me is, where did it come from? What did T-Rex evolve from? Yeah, that's sort of the long uh, reign of the tyrants. You think of these as the apex predators of the Cretaceous, and they absolutely were. But, uh, you know, where, where did they come from? It seems to go back to uh, the late Jurassic, about 165 to about 150 million years ago, where tyrannosaurs were actually tiny, you know, spread across, uh, you know, prehistoric North America and Europe and Asia. You'd have these animals that were about six feet long or so, fuzzy, didn't really look very much like tyrannosaurus rex at all. And yet, based upon some shared anatomical features, we know that these were the first tyrannosaurs, and they're sort of under the feet of the uh, major carnivores of the time. It took them tens of millions of years before they even started to resemble those really giant, imposing, familiar tyrannosaurs. When people think of tyrannosaurus, I think everyone will get an idea in their head of this ferocious creature with covered in scales, but we don't even necessarily know what they looked like, especially when it came to their skin. Absolutely. As far as I know, no one's ever published anything on Tyrannosaurus rex skin and the few uh, specimens that there were of some of their close relatives, things like uh, Tarbosaurus from Mongolia and uh, Albertosaurus from uh, Alberta, Canada. Those specimens have either never been published or they've been destroyed and they've been lost. So there is some you know, evidence you know, based upon these sort of lost or unfigured specimens that big Tyrannosaurus did have scales, but then again, feathers are sort of creeping further and further out into the dinosaur family tree. And it was only, I think, just last year or a little bit more than a year ago that um, there's a gigantic tyrannosaur called Eutyrannus that was actually described in nature, covered in this very simple, archaic kind of proto-feather. And there's actually another smaller, early tyrannosaur, also entirely covered in this kind of fuzz. So the fact that you have feathers amongst all the related dinosaur branches in, in their family tree, that all those have feathers, and you've got at least two tyrannosaurs, including a giant one that was over 30 feet long, having feathers, it makes the distinct possibility that Tyrannosaurus rex also had some kind of fluffy, fuzzy protofuzz. It could have been actually a very cute killer. It doesn't really fit with its normal image being covered in dino fluff. Uh, absolutely not, and a lot of people are sort of hoping that, you know, when the Jurassic Park sequel comes out, you know, a year or so, we'll see feathery tyrannosaurs and kind of take that for a test drive and see what the public response is. 
then on to my absolute favourite question. What were those little arms for? We still don't know. I mean, the object is so much ridicule. You have this imposing predator, the nightmare of the Cretaceous. And, you know, any time that we uh, bring up Tyrannosaurus, we feel obliged to make fun of those little arms. There's an entire website called T-Rex trying, poking fun at this dinosaur for not being able to do very simple tasks because of those tiny arms. It's still very much a mystery. This is one of those uh, questions where we know that they must have been doing something. Research has found that, that these dinosaurs have very, very muscular sort of arms. That You know, these are not vestigial features there must have been doing something but it's one thing to say okay it must have been doing something and another thing to figure out the function maybe it's for some kind of display especially if there's some fluff or fuzz on there maybe they're used for some sort of prey capture maybe there's something else entirely that we don't know maybe the person who described Tyrannosaurus Rex Henry Fairfield Osborne was correct when he speculated that maybe they used it for you know grasping their mates or something like that without a time machine we may never actually know but based upon the anatomy and the muscles that must have been there, they were used for something. This is one of the sort of enduring mysteries of Tyrannosaurus Rex. So there are lots of questions up in the air. Are we ever going to get answers to these? Is it possible that modern technology is going to develop or we'll find one fossil that will answer these questions? Or are these always going to be scientific questions? Some of them are more likely to be answered than others. So in, in terms of where Tyrannosaurus rex came from, perhaps paleontologists can find the critical fossils to sort of fill in the gaps of the backstory. A Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton could be found with skin impressions or feather impressions. In terms of what the arms are for, that's a little bit more difficult to do because that's almost something that's behavioral. But you never know what's going to show up in the fossil record. I mean, maybe there might be a specimen that's found that's actually doing whatever it did with its arms uh, when, it, when it perished and got preserved. I mean, stranger things have happened not so long ago. Someone described 40 million-year-old turtles that were caught in the act of mating when they were fossilized. I mean, if that can be fossilized, you know, who knows what's still out there in the fossil record. That was Brian Sweetek talking to Noah, and the feature is available online for free at nature.com news. Still to come in the research highlights, questions of timing, including how microbes reveal a corpse's time of death and how skin cell rhythms could protect skin from sun damage. But first, reading minds. Sounds like a magic show, but it's actually neuroscience. For decades, neuroscientists have used brain scanning technology to show which bits of the brain process what. More recently, they've developed ways of inspecting these blobs more closely, pulling out information about what a subject is looking at, remembering and even dreaming. But does that mean they can read your mind? Probably not. And usually I'll be talking to our very own Kerry Smith about this, as she's written a feature about it for Nature. But first, let's hear from neuroscientist Jack Gallant from the University of California, Berkeley. He's been at this for a while and he draws an analogy for us. So you can think of the brain as a computer that takes information in the world, like scenes and events that happen outside you, and sort of converts it, it encodes it, into some sort of pattern of brain activity that your brain can use to do useful work, to basically to understand the world. And so encoding is when we go from the world into the brain. And then once we have some brain activity, if we have some way to measure it, then we can decode it and basically make a picture of the brain's representation of the world. Current uh, brain reading technology is actually good enough to be able to make a picture of the brain, actually to make a movie of what, uh, what you saw. That was Jack Gallant from the University of California, Berkeley. 
First off, Kerry, tell me, when did this all start? For years, scientists had used a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging to look at the activity in broad areas of the brain. So if you were looking at something, they'd look at your brain activity and they'd say, OK, here in the visual cortex, we have some activity that corresponds to the fact that you're looking at something. But it was really just broad blobs of activity and they're not very fine grain. So using statistical techniques, starting about a decade ago, scientists were able to look inside those blobs and not only use very strongly activated pieces of brain, but look at the patterns of activity across lots of different areas and therefore try and pull out much more information. So just by looking at a pattern in the brain activity, they can tell what sort of objects that person was looking at. So the early studies did exactly that. They looked at categories of object. Can we tell if this person is looking at a house or a shoe or a cat? So the computer programs could select from kind of 10 options, say. In more recent years, starting in the mid-2000s, people like Jack Gallant's group at the University of California at Berkeley, he's been trying to reconstruct what subjects are seeing. So that involves getting them to watch hours of video footage, scanning their brains, seeing what their brains do, and then seeing if from that brain activity a computer algorithm can reconstruct what was in the picture and therefore what the subject was looking at. Why would scientists want to do this? Very good question. Well, but wouldn't you want to look inside someone's head? I mean, that's essentially what it is. There are kind of two reasons. So it's useful to know what the brain's doing. If we could do this with the brain areas that are responsible for movement, if we could understand the signals they're sending, then we could, you know, use that to move a robotic arm or something on behalf of a patient. In that sense, you don't really need to know what those signals actually are. You just need to know that they're coming out and that you can use them to move something around usefully. But the other reason to do this is actually to look at how the brain encodes things in the first place. So this can tell you a lot of information about exactly where in the brain um, certain things are being represented and then maybe how the information changes as it moves through different areas of the brain and sort of comes out the other side. And you mentioned that in Jack Gallant's lab he was getting his subjects to look at footage. But can they actually decode what people are thinking without looking at images? Well, that's much more difficult. So the experimenter can monitor very carefully the input in an experiment that's based on vision because you know that you're making people watch movies. But so if I wanted to scan your brain and decode it and say, is Thea going to drink a cup of tea or a cup of coffee this afternoon? I don't really know what the representation for I want tea versus I want coffee looks like in your brain. Whereas from these studies that have been done already, we do know what the representation for I'm looking at a cup of tea versus I'm looking at a grain of coffee looks like. So when it comes to intentions or thoughts or feelings or dreams which have recently been decoded this year actually by Yukiyasu Kamitani in his lab in Kyoto, Japan. That's a lot more difficult. How reliable are these decoded patterns? They vary. If you watch the video which you can do on the Nature website of Jack Gallant's attempts to reconstruct movies They look a little bit like the movies that people originally saw, but they're not great. They're a little bit smudgy and they're a little bit blurred around the edges. But considering this is a computer guessing a picture from someone's brain activity, then it's really not bad. In other modalities, very, very difficult and not very reliable. So for dreaming, for example, you come up against the problem of how do you classify dreams? And in the study that Kamitani's group did, they woke people up during their peaceful sleep in the scanner and asked them the contents of their dream. Well, for that, they're having to rely on subjective accounts and it's very difficult for them to know well was there really a statue and a woman in this dream or is this person just sort of misremembering that and what about the ethics of all of this i'm not sure most people would want others to know what they're thinking all the time that's quite a scary prospect Yeah, and a lot of the coverage that's been in the mainstream media has alerted people to that. But it's a little bit misleading because 
for a start, to have your brain scanned and decoded, you have to make your way into a very, very expensive scanner, which is probably not going to be available in any police stations anytime soon. You also have to willingly think about whatever it is that scientists are trying to decode. But potentially this decoding technique might be used in sort of crime investigation situations. Some people are thinking about that, yeah. I mean, ethicists are thinking about it because the technique has begun to be able to show that it might be useful for pulling out things from people's brains and and they customarily think about things that are 20 years in the future. And it's not just ethicists, some scientists are thinking about this too. At John Dylan Haynes's lab, he's based in Berlin in Germany, he's been doing a study where he gets people to walk around virtual reality rooms. And the premise is, if you were a suspect and the police wanted to tell if you'd been to a crime scene before, this is potentially the kind of setup they might use. So they put people in a scanner, they show them some rooms that they've walked around in virtual reality earlier that day and that they haven't, and they try and decode whether that person has been there before. They can do that with about 80% accuracy. So you actually went over to Jack Gallant's lab in California. Did you get your brain decoded? Well, that day, scanners being the temperamental beings that they are, it had broken. So he had promised to scan my brain and decode it. And then, alas, on the day I was there, we weren't able to do that. But he did show me an awful lot of his interesting video results um, and some recent work they've been doing on semantics and the locations of words in the brain. And then we went for dinner. OK, well, thanks for decoding that for us, Kerry. Remember, the feature is at nature.com slash news and you can watch the video there or on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash nature video channel. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Noah Baker. Human skin cells have a daily rhythm that helps protect them from sun damage. A team based in Spain analysed cultures of cells and found clock genes turning on and off in daily cycles. In the day, these cycles switch on other genes involved in protecting against DNA damage from sunlight. The team suggests that disrupting this internal clock could lead to premature ageing. That paper is in Cell, Stem Cell. Microbes that colonise dead bodies can reveal how long ago an animal died. They could, one day, aid criminal investigations too. Forensic scientists often use insects to gauge the time of death, but they can be out by weeks. A Colorado-based team sequenced microbial communities in mouse corpses that had been buried for up to a month and a half. The communities changed as time went on, and the resulting clock revealed time of death with a margin of error of just a few days. That study was published in eLife. Finally this week, it's the News Chat. We have David Ray, Chief News Editor, joining us in the studio. David, thanks for coming in. Now, the lead story in the section this week relates to drugs used for lethal injections in the States. There's been a bit of a history in the United States about um, the executioners not being able to use particular medicines to kill people and that they use a sort of uh, flea drug protocol to do it normally, anaesthetise, then paralyse and then finally stop the heart. Now, the medicines they use to do this are quite common, but they're also quite difficult to get hold of. And this is for two reasons, because the US doesn't generally manufacture the most effective drugs itself, so it needs to get them from somewhere else. That place is normally the EU or countries within the EU. Germany is a big manufacturer of uh, anaesthetics and sedatives. But the difficulty is the EU bans the export of these medicines uh, because they're being used in capital punishment, and that's the same in any country in the world. So the US can't basically can't get hold of them. So what it's having to do at the moment is sort of scrabble around, find the best anaesthetic that the lawyers are happy with for their, you know, their client or inmate to be, to be killed with. It's not completely inhumane. And what's actually happened this week, uh, there's been a cancellation of a, a, 
or suspension of a, a death penalty by lethal injection in one of the US states because they're planning to use anaesthetic called propofol, which actually, incidentally, is the, the medicine that killed Michael Jackson. But the interesting thing is here, propofol, for the first time, is a very commonly used anaesthetic. It's used 50 million times a year in the United States. And if they go ahead and use this this medicine in the uh, lethal injection, it means that the EU could legitimately ban all exports of propofol to the US, which would obviously have huge consequences for the patients. The anaesthetists are up in arms about this because propofol to them is, you know, it's, it's a really good medicine. It increases recovery times after operations and it also reduces nausea. So two things. The US has had to suspend these executions because it can't find decent medicines and the knock-on effect for that could be pretty bad for patients. This can't be the first time that a drug like propofol, which is used for anaesthesia, has come into this kind of controversy. I mean, how have people been getting around this problem to date? This is a, a really good point. Absolutely. It's come up a couple of times now, with, um, but because of the EU ban, uh, a drug called sodium thiopental was used uh, in executions and the US had good stocks of that that were EU made, but they had good stocks and they're now beginning to run out, which is kind of why this thing's coming to a head. So they basically can't find anyone else to give them these medicines. And they have a slight alternative in that in the US they have compounding pharmacies whereby they basically they're kind of unregulated backstreet pharmacies where they cobble together medicines that they can use in executions. But obviously a lot of people don't like them using that because there's no proof that the drugs are as good as, you know, as they would be if bought on the open market. In terms of the reaction from the scientific community, from pharmaceutical companies. Um, what, what's the future of this for them? Because the EU company that manufactures this uh, doesn't want propofol sent to the US under any circumstances if it could be used in capital punishment. Exactly that. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Zanius Carby is actually the name of the company and they're hugely supportive of the suspension in the US of these executions because obviously without that, there, there would be a ban on, on their exports. Uh, and I think sort of more importantly, the anaesthetists in the US are sort of up in arms because any kind of ban on propofol means that they won't be able to serve their patients as well as they'd like to. So there's been a few statements supporting the suspension and saying that we've got to sort this out once and for all. There's got to be a medicine that can be used in in capital punishment and it's got to have no knock-on effects. So will that be the course of action then, find a medicine that does work in these circumstances, perhaps manufactured in the US? Or are people calling for a suspension of this practice. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there is a lobby that says no to capital punishment. And I think that's still, you know, this is more sort of grist to their mill. Um, but, but ultimately, they will have to find something because lethal injection is now almost the sole uh, method of execution in the States. And they, they need the medicines to do it. So as you were saying earlier, it's a three step process, this uh, lethal injection, the, the anaesthetic, the paralysis, and then the final dose of something that would kill someone. I mean, isn't it quite ethically difficult to make such a cocktail of drugs in the first place. Aren't US manufacturers going to have a problem? Well, exactly. I mean, I think it's normally the anaesthetic, which is A, the most important, and B, the sort of most um, difficult to find. So the, the potassium chloride, which is the, one, the third part of the, 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 the sort of cocktail of drugs, is the one that stops the heart. That's very easy to make. The other two are slightly more difficult. So what the, the options for the US now would be to try and make the medicine themselves, in which case they'd have to sort of sign up a big, you know, drug manufacturer that get it all approved. And there's certain sort of regulatory restrictions in the US that stop some of these uh, companies from producing certain anaesthetics. So they have to go, you know, file a field to, to, to get their supplies. And uh, that's hence back to, you know, square one. 
Okay, so that's the lead story in this week's section. You can check out more information on that for the full story, nature.com slash news. Uh, Elsewhere in the news section, David, this week, we're going back to a story that people will remember from a few years ago where the volcano in Iceland, the Eyjafjallajökull, if I'm remembering correctly, I spent a long time learning how to pronounce that. That volcano, as people remember, shot this giant cloud of ash into the sky and now aeroplane manufacturers, aeronautical engineers are trying to figure out what kind of damage that could cause. Exactly. A fascinating story. And henceforth, I shall be calling the volcano the volcano. Let's just clear that up now. Um, but yeah, fascinating story. A guy in um, Norway has invented a detection system to, to sort of figure out, for stick on the side of an airplane that detects um, ash in, in, in the air up to a few sort of obviously you know, tens of miles ahead to allow planes to, to fly around it. So what's happened this time, which is new, they're dumping a tonne of the ash from the actual Icelandic volcano into the air over the Bay of Biscay, sort of a few hundred miles off, off the French coast. And then another commercial airliner will use, with the detection system attached to it, will try and uh, pick up the ash cloud and, uh, and detect how much how the size of the particles is the key point, because the bigger the particles, the more likely they are to clog up the engines. Um, so this detection system basically works a bit like a fog detection system in that it can figure out exactly the density of the, the particles ahead of it and gives the, the sort of pilot a, an infrared image of what's coming up. Uh, so he can therefore figure out, OK, enormous ash cloud ahead, huge particles, or it may not even be an ash cloud, it could be something else, and then can either go above or, or, or along the side of it. Now, ash clouds from volcanoes, pretty uh, rare events, but this could work, you say, for other types of perhaps large particulates, aerosols in in the air that planes might want to avoid. If they're the same size as the um, volcanic ash, yes, I think they could do. But I mean, I think he's the people who've invented it are specifically marketing or, or developing it for using commercial airliners detecting ash and. I think whilst we had that classic example, was it four years ago now or so, when uh, the Icelandic volcano erupted, this is a far more common problem in places like Indonesia and Chile, where quite often the air is full of this ash most of the time. Um, so, you know, growing increase in, in the number of planes flying in these places means that they do need a, a, an able detection system. I'm pleased to hear that no plane actually has to genuinely fly into the uh, ash cloud um, to do this experiment. It will be a detection, um, you know, a few hundred metres before the plane gets there. But which lucky commercial airline has been selected for this mission? Well, actually, it's a a joint initiative between um, EasyJet and Airbus. So I think EasyJet pays for it and Airbus are supplying the um, the planes. But actually, you say nothing's flying through the the cloud, but a little four-seater, I think, propeller-powered plane is going to be flying through the actual ash cloud. And this is something the team have done before. They think it's fairly safe to do it um, because the ash cloud's not particularly thick. So they'll actually be going through the the, the ash cloud itself to do their, their own scientific undertakings to figure out exactly what's going on in the middle of it. And the way they've done that, the way they've done this experiment, they're actually dropping ash from the volcano that erupted in 2010, I think it was. Yeah, that's spot on. Yeah, they're going up with a whole load of buckets, essentially, in the back of this uh, Airbus cargo plane. And they're going to push it out at sort of 4,000 metres, I think. And then the commercial airliner sort of follows close behind and, uh, and detects the, the ash and, and the smaller plane goes and flies right through the middle of it. And I'm sure that next week in the news section there'll be an update on how it's all gone. 28th of October is when the experiment is launching. Thank you to David Ray for coming in. The news section has more details on both those stories, nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Next time, doing science in the shadow of the Nazis. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.